Section 42 of 93 by Victor Hugo, translated by Aline Delano. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3, Book 2, Chapter 7, The Two Poles of Truth. After a few weeks, crowded with the vicissitudes of civil war throughout the district of Fougeres, the talk ran for the most part upon two men, wholly unlike in character, who were nevertheless engaged in the same work, fighting side by side in the great revolutionary struggle. The savage duel still continued, but the Vendée was losing ground, especially in Ilet Villan, where, thanks to the young commander who at Dole had so opportunely confronted the audacity of six thousand royalists with that of fifteen hundred patriots, the insurrection, if not suppressed, was at least far less active and restricted to certain limits. Several successful attacks had followed that exploit, and from these repeated victories a new state of affairs had sprung into existence. Matters had assumed a different aspect, but a singular complication had arisen. That the Republic was in the ascendant throughout this region of the Vendée was beyond a doubt. But which Republic? Amidst the dawning of triumph, two Republics confronted each other, that of terror, determined to conquer by severity, and that of mercy, striving to win the victory by mildness. Which was to prevail? The visible representatives of these two forms, one of which was conciliatory and the other implacable, were two men, each possessing influence and authority, one a military commander, the other a civil delegate. Which of the two would win the day? The delegate was supported by a tremendous influence. He came bringing with him the threatening watchword from the Paris Commune to the battalion of Santerre, No mercy, no quarter. As a means of compelling implicit obedience to his authority, he had the decree of the convention reading as follows. Penalty of death to whomsoever shall set at liberty or connive at the escape of a rebel chief. And also full powers from the Committee of Public Safety, with an injunction commanding obedience to him as a delegate, signed by Robespierre, Danton, and Marat. The soldier, for his part, had but the power that is born of pity. His weapons of defense were his right arm to chastise the enemy, and his heart to pardon them. As a conqueror, he felt that he had a right to spare the conquered. Hence a conflict, deep but as yet unacknowledged, between these two men. They lived in different atmospheres, both wrestling with rebellion, the one armed with the thunderbolts of victory, the other with those of terror. Throughout the bocage, men talked of nothing else, and the extreme intimacy of two men of such utterly opposite natures contributed to increase the anxiety of those who were watching them on every side. These two antagonists were friends. Never were two hearts drawn together by a deeper or a nobler sympathy. The man of ungentle nature had saved the life of him who was merciful. The scar on his face bore witness to the fact. These men represented in their own persons the images of death and of life, embodying the principle of destruction and that of peace. And they loved each other. Conceive, if you can, Orestes merciful and Pylades pitiless. Try to imagine Arimanes the brother of Ormus. Let us also add that of these two men, the one who was called ferocious showed himself at the same time the most brotherly of men. He dressed wounds, nursed the sick, spent his days and nights in the ambulances and hospitals, took pity on the barefooted children, kept nothing for himself but gave all he had to the poor. He never missed a battle, always marching at the head of the columns, was ever in the thickest of the fight. Armed, it is true, for he always wore in his belt a saber and two pistols, yet practically unarmed, for no one had ever seen him draw his sword or raise his pistols. He faced blows, but never returned them. It was said that he had been a priest. These two men were Govan and Simordan, 
at variance in principles, though united in friendship. It was like a soul cleft in twain, and Govan had in truth received the gentler half of Simurdan's nature. One might say that the latter had bestowed the white ray upon Govan, and kept the black one for himself. Hence a secret discord. Sooner or later this suppressed disagreement could hardly fail to explode, and one morning the contest began as follows. Simurdan said to Govan, "'What have we accomplished?' To which the latter replied, "'You know as well as I. I have dispersed Lontanac's bands. He has but a few men left, and has been driven to the forest of Fougere. In eight days he will be surrounded.' "'And in fifteen? "'He will be captured.' "'And then?' "'You have seen my notice.' "'Yes. And what then?' "'He is to be shot.' A truce to clemency, he must be guillotined. I approve of a military death. And I of a revolutionary one. Looking Govan full in the face, Simordan said, Why did you order those nuns of the convent of Saint-Marc-le-Blanc to be set at liberty? I do not wage war against women, replied Govan. Those women hate the people, and when there is a question of hatred, one woman is equal to ten men. Why did you refuse to send that band of fanatical old priests whom you took at Louvignier before the Revolutionary Tribunal? Neither do I wage war against old men. An old priest is worse than a young one. The rebellion that is advocated by white hair is so much the more dangerous. People have faith in wrinkles. Do not indulge in false pity, Govan. The regicide is the true liberator. Keep your eye on the tower of the temple. The Temple Tower! I would have the Dauphin out of it. I am not making war against children. Simurdan's eye grew stern. Learn, then, Govan, that one must make war on a woman when her name is Marie Antoinette, on an old man if he happens to be Pope Pius VI, and upon a child who goes by the name of Louis Capet. I am no politician, master. Try, then, not to be a dangerous man. Why was it that during the attack of the post of Corset, when the rebel Jean Treton, repulsed and defeated, rushed alone, saber in hand against your entire division, you cried, Open the ranks, let him pass through? Because it is not fit that fifteen hundred men should be allowed to kill one man. And why, at Cayetrie d'Astier, when you saw that your soldiers were about to kill Le Vendée and Joseph Bézier, who was wounded and just able to drag himself along, did you cry, Forward, leave this man to me, and directly afterwards fire your pistol in the air? Because one shrinks from killing a fallen enemy. There you were wrong. Both of these men are leaders at this present moment. Joseph Bézier is known as Moustache, and Jean Treton as Jean d'Argent. By saving their lives, you presented the Republic with two enemies. I should prefer to make friends for her rather than enemies. After the victory of Landéan, why did you not shoot the three hundred peasant prisoners? Because Bonchamp pardoned the Republican prisoners, and I wished it to be known that the Republic pardons the Royalist prisoners. Then I suppose you will pardon Lantenac if you take him. No! Why not, since you pardoned three hundred peasants? The peasants are only ignorant men. Lantanac knows what he is about. But Lantanac is your kinsman. 
And France nearer than he? Lantenac is an old man. To me, Lantenac is a stranger. He has no age. He is ready to summon the English. He represents invasion. He is the country's enemy. And the duel between us can only be ended by his death or mine. Remember these words, Govan. I have said them. For a while, both men remained silent, gazing at each other. Then Govan continued, This will be a bloody year, this ninety-three. Take care, cried Simordan. There are terrible duties to be performed, and we must beware of accusing the innocent instrument. How long since we have blamed the doctor for his patient's illness. Yes, the chief characteristic of this stupendous year is its pitiless severity. And why is this? Because it is the great revolutionary year, the year which is the very incarnation of revolution. Revolution feels no more pity for its enemy, the old world, than the surgeon feels for the gangrene against which he is fighting. The business of revolution is to extirpate royalty in the person of the king, aristocracy in that of the nobleman, despotism in that of the soldier, and superstition and barbarism in the persons of the priest and the judge. In one word, of every form of tyranny in the image of the tyrant. The operation is a fearful one, but revolution performs it with a steady hand. As to the amount of sound flesh that must be sacrificed, ask a boor what he thinks of it. Do you suppose it possible to remove a tumor without loss of blood? Can a conflagration be extinguished without violent efforts? These terrible necessities are the very condition of success. A surgeon may be compared to a butcher, or a healer may seem like an executioner. Revolution is devoted to its fatal work. It mutilates that it may save. What? Can you expect it to take pity on the virus? Would you have it merciful to poison? It will not listen. It holds the past within its grasp, and it means to make an end of it. It cuts deeply into civilization that it may promote the health of mankind. You suffer, no doubt. But consider for how short a time it will endure, only so long as the operation requires. And after that is over, you will live. Revolution is amputating the world, hence this hemorrhage, 93. A surgeon is calm, said Govan, and the men I see are violent. Revolution requires the aid of savage workmen replied Simordan. It repulses all trembling hands. It trusts only such as are inexorable. Danton is the impersonation of the terrible, Robespierre of the inflexible, Saint-Just of the immovable, and Marat of the implacable. Take note of it, Govan. We need these names. They are worth as much as armies to us. They will terrify Europe. And possibly the future also, replied Govan. He paused and then continued. But really, master, you are mistaken. I accuse no one. My idea of revolution is that it shall be irresponsible. We ought not to say this man is innocent or that one is guilty. Louis Sixteenth is like a sheep cast among lions. He wishes to escape, and in trying to defend himself he would bite if he could, but one cannot turn into a lion at will. His weakness is regarded as a crime, and when the angry sheep shows his teeth, Ah, the traitor! cry the lions, and they proceed straightway to devour him and afterwards fall to fighting among themselves. The sheep is a brute. And what are the lions? This answer set Simordan thinking. The lions, he replied, represent the human conscience, principles, ideas. It is they who have caused the reign of terror. Some day the revolution will justify all that. 
Take care lest terror should prove the calumny of the revolution. Govan continued. Liberty, equality, fraternity, these are the dogmas of peace and harmony. Why give them so terrible an aspect? What are we striving to accomplish? To bring all nations under one universal republic. Well, then, let us not terrify them. Of what use is intimidation? Neither nations nor birds can be attracted by fear. We must not do evil that good may come. We have not overturned the throne to leave the scaffold standing. Death to the king and life to the nations. Let us strike off the crowns but spare the heads. Revolution means concord and not terror. Schemes of benevolence are but poorly served by merciless men. Amnesty is to me the grandest word in human language. I am opposed to the shedding of blood save as I risk my own. Still, I am but a soldier. I can do no more than fight. Yet if we are to lose the privilege of pardoning, of what use is it to conquer? Let us be enemies, if you will, in battle. But when victory is ours, then is the time to be brothers. Take care, repeated Simordan for the third time. Take care, Govan. You are dearer to me than a son. And he added thoughtfully, In times like these, pity may be nothing less than treason in another form. Listening to these two men, one might have fancied himself hearing a dialogue between a sword and an axe. End of section 42